0: Ephesians 4 is a turning point in Paul's book here, this letter that he writes to these Ephesian Christians. And we're getting into some of this really practical stuff about how to live out the identity that he's explained in the first three chapters. He talks about living a life worthy of this calling that we've received. And he talks about the unity that happens in the body of Christ. Walking in humility, walking in gentleness, walking in patience and meekness, walking, bearing with one another in love. And as you walk together, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And how does this all play out? Well, we're all different in our oneness. Because he gave some to be apostles, and some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. And he gave some to be brown sugar, and white sugar, and flour, and oats, and baking powder, and vanilla, and cinnamon, and raisins, and salt. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you weren't here last week. I had, I had uh, one lady come up to me afterwards, and she goes, Where are the nuts? You left us out. I've, well, I don't like nuts in my cookies, so I didn't put. I didn't. I left you all out there. But yeah, we need nutty people as well. Um, life would be boring without the nuts among us. What? What's all the common function here? What is all this about? Well, it's to prepare and equip God's people for works of service. I made a statement last week, and sometimes I, um, sometimes I exaggerate to prove a point. I mean, Jesus really never did that, obviously. Pluck your eye out kind of thing. I made a statement that my job is to work myself out of a job. And I'm not sure how that went over. If it just like, well, I'm not sure what he's talking about. My job is to, like this says, to equip God's people for works of service. And the more I can equip people to do things, it's not just the less I have to do. I get to do other things that I am called to do, that I am wired to do, that I am gifted in this season to do. And if there are things that you're gifted in and wired to do, then you ought to be able to do that. You ought to have the freedom to do that within the body of Christ. And that's the calling that, that every person has, not just like paid staff at a church. I'm not really looking to quit doing this. I'm looking to grow in my area of ministry, as well as grow yours. But every part plays a part. Each part plays a part. When I was in Bible college at Ozark, my youth ministry professor, Gary zusiak he's Dr. Zeus now, but then he was a youth ministry professor, and his, his youth ministry motto, and he just drilled this into us, Tuti and if you know Zeus, that makes perfect sense. 2d22. What's 2d22? 2nd Timothy 2 2. 2t22. That was easily remembered for us. 2nd Timothy 2 2 says, And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. It's this replication, it's multiplication in the body of Christ. As you make disciples who are then equipped to make disciples, they go out and They do what you did for them. And so there's unity in here. There's growth here. But sometimes we're not always thinking about that. Sometimes we who do the ministry also need to be equipping others to carry it out when we can't anymore. There should always be someone who can do what you do. And not just in the church, but I mean nobody is everyone's absolutely unique, but no one's irreplaceable But we're not always good about that in in the church especially and Maybe that's okay for the time because maybe the ministry that you're doing is only for a season It's temporary and nothing lasts forever And so when you stop doing that ministry it stops with you and maybe that's okay But largely the things that we're involved in are things that need to carry on when we're gone Things that need to carry on when we're done doing them. And somebody else needs to pick this up. But there are reasons why we're not so good at this sometimes. And sometimes it's because we're afraid no one will do it like we did it. You know, they'll do it wrong because I'm the one that does this right kind of thing. It's, it's, it's that idea that if, if you want something done, you've got to do it yourself. Because not only will they do it wrong, they, don't, they won't do it as faithfully as I'm doing it right now. They, they um, you know, because before, before I came along, this was a mess. You know what I'm saying? We can get that way. I'm not throwing rocks because I'm, I'm one of the worst at this because when I think about how am I going to equip someone to do what I'm doing, first thing is, well, who's going to do that? Who would I ever find to do that? Who wants to do that? And I think, well, I'm doing it, and I rather enjoy it most of the time, so why wouldn't anybody else like doing it? But then there's that fear, well, I have to let it go. I have, to let some, I have to trust somebody else to do it in their personality and their giftedness and their style and their way. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different. And am I okay with that? I know some of you learn to swim just by being thrown into the deep end of the pool. Anybody? They don't do that in lifeguard class anymore, I don't think. I mean, it's traumatizing. But when you do that in ministry settings... Oftentimes, it does not go well. And some of you know what that's like. You were just handed something, and they ran away. (laughs) Here, you do it. See ya. Bye. And you had to sink or swim with whatever you were handed. This isn't the biblical model for equipping, training, and building up the church of Christ. The church that is His body. And so, because acting that way or holding on to things and having control issues, or other such things, doesn't doesn't produce unity. It doesn't produce maturity. Because we don't really get along, we're just bouncing off of each other in some ways. What I'm saying is, in light of all this, verse 17 of chapter 4, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, somebody tell me which book we're reading. Ephesians, it's not a trick question. Okay, where did the Ephesians live? Ephesus, was it Jewish or was it Gentile? It was a Gentile uh, city. But he's saying, don't live like the Gentiles do. But back in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, I, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, right? And then in, uh, rewind a little bit more in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, I'm writing to you people, you were born Non-Jewish, you were Gentile by birth. I'm writing to you for the sake of you Gentiles, and I'm telling you, don't live like the Gentiles do. But I are one. You know. I mean, that would be like telling us, hey, don't live like the Americans. But I am an American. I, what's, what's Paul doing? Is he being just totally mindless? No. I, there is, there's a design here. What's he doing? He's addressing them in their new identity. Technically, you're Gentile by birth. But as a Christ follower, your primary identity is some other category. You're not Jewish, you're not Gentile, you're a part of a new humanity. You're a Christian who happens to be a Greek, or you're a Christian who happens to be Jewish, or you're a Christian who happens to be an American. I love what Tim Mackey says in, when he expressed some truths about this text, he said, please don't mistake your nationality with who you actually are. And forgive me some when I say we wrap Christianity and the American flag way too fast sometimes. It was never meant to be dressed in red, white, and blue. We're Christians who happens to be living in the United States. But don't confuse your nationality with who you actually are in Christ. Who we are outflows a whole new behavior that conforms to Christ within our setting, within our cultural setting, but apart from it. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. And Let me illustrate by a story that I heard recently. A lady by the name of Crystal Jones, she was a first-year teacher, in a very underserved school district in inner city Atlanta. This was a few years ago. I'm not sure exactly how many years, but at least 20 years ago, I'm I'm thinking. There was no kindergarten in this school district. And so as a first year teacher in a first grade, she had these kids coming in from a very poor um, neighborhood. Some of them knew some sight words But some of them didn't know how to hold a pencil. I mean, it's kind of like one of those kindergarten teacher kind of situations where you have kids come in and they don't know their colors, and some can read to you. Some know their alphabet really well, and some can even write their name. Others can't do a thing, and you have to start from square one. This was her setting in first grade in an underserved school district in inner city, Atlanta. And so... Given the challenges academically, and also the challenges uh, financially, socially, in this particular setting, after about a week, she figured out, I'm going to speak first-grader language. Because she saw them on the playground, she saw them in the cafeteria, and what these first-graders wanted more than anything was to be like the oldest group, the oldest of their group, which was third-graders. They wanted to be third-graders. Every little kid wants to be a little older. Act play with, whatever, a little older. And so she said to her students, by the end of the year, you're all going to be third graders. And they didn't call each other by their first name. She said, we're all scholars. And every day, at the first part of the day, she would define, and they would say together, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is really good at it. And they would all say this together, and they would refer to the, each other as scholar so-and-so by their, by their last names, scholar this and scholar that. And when someone would come into her classroom, she would say, this is my group of scholars, and by the end of the year, they'll be like third graders. Some of them couldn't even, couldn't even locate the letter K on the, on the board. But by Halloween, she said, I had them. I had them because they started policing each other. When they would act out in class, no, you, can't, sh- you hush, I'm going to be a third grader. And, it, and, and by, by the uh, end of March, every one of the, the last student in that class passed first grade reading comprehension. Some of them were way into second grade reading and math. How did she do this? She constantly drilled into their heads who she decided they were. She didn't keep reminding them of who they weren't. She didn't keep shaming them as to what they came from or what challenges they had. Now, she addressed the challenges, and she tried to work them into more and more of the advanced curriculum beyond first-grade stuff, but she always held this out in front of them, you're a scholar, you can be a third-grader. And she treated them as such. Behavior follows our sense of identity. If you really believe you're going to be a third grader by the end of the year, you will fall in line and do what it takes to become a third grader by the end of the year. This is what Paul is doing here, and it's genius. Don't live like the Gentiles. Well, what is a Gentile? Their thinking is futile or empty. They're darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God. They're ignorant of this life that is in them because their hearts are hard. They've lost all sensitivity, and they've given themselves over to all kinds of sensuality, and they've indulged in every kind of impurity, and they continually lust for more. That's not who you are. Don't live like that. You're Christ's people. You are little Christ's. Live like that. Let's go this direction. You were taught in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. You're done with that. That old self is being corrupted by deceitful desires. I love that phrase, deceitful desires. We all have desires. We all have empty places in us that we want to be filled by something and most of them are lying to you. Most of them are lying to you. They say that that you'll be fulfilled. They say you'll be happy, but in the end of the day, you're still hungering for more. Don't be like that. You've put off that old self. You've put on the new self, and it was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so, therefore, verse 25, here we get to the nitty-gritty. This affects everything. Therefore, each of you must, and here he talks about how you talk. It affects everything how you talk. Don't speak falsehood. each other you don't lie to each other that's not who you are we're all members of one body don't don't lie to each other put on truth verse 29 don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only what's helpful for building others up according to their need that it may benefit those who listen that word unwholesome it's just rotten you may think, well, that's you know four-letter words and dirty jokes. It, it might include that, but it really, it's just rotten. Don't let rotten stuff come out your mouth. Don't bring decay into the conversation. Speak life into people. Chapter five, verse four. Nor should there be. Now, there's three words here, three words that only occur right here in the entire New Testament. It's the only time these three words occur. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Obscenity is, well, King James says filthiness. I mean, it's just, this is a common struggle for a lot of people. I think James three two says it best. James 3.2 says, we all make many mistakes. If we could control our tongues, we'd be perfect and can control our, ourselves in every other way. Right? I've seen how we kind of wink, wink at this. And some people, they might even say, I'm a Christian, but I cuss a little. Okay? And the question is, the question is, do you cuss a little less than you used to? Because that's the road we're on. That's the path of holiness, that we're, we're shedding off the old self and its practices. Are you confessing that sin and allowing Jesus to change your vocabulary? Or have you resigned yourself to staying a first grader? There should be no obscenity. Or foolish talk. It's a compound word, morologia, which morologia, I'm not even sure how to pronounce that. Moros and logos, stupid words. Okay? No stupid words. We don't need that. And coarse joking. It has that idea of innuendo. It's really literally the turning of a word. You know that person. Maybe it's he's in your shop or in your class or or in, in your at your break table that you can say anything, and that guy will turn that and said into, into some dirty joke that you never meant to ever mean that. But they have a twisted sense. N- none of that. That's inappropriate. Don't do that. That's not that's not reflective of who you are anymore. So it affects everything we say. How then this new way to be human. But it also affects your emotional reaction to people. Look back at chapter 4, verse 26. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Does it say don't be angry? Everyone say no. No, no, of course we're going to be angry. But in your anger, don't sin. Don't blow it. Don't let the sun go down. While you're still angry, this is a hard one. What it's guarding against is bitterness. Make sure by the end of the day, you'll have laid that to rest. Because if you keep picking that up, if you don't resolve it in time, it's just going to eat you from the inside. And don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a place to hang on. If you let your temper fly way too fast, if you let your words fly, if you hang on to the anger overnight and it just starts to keep eating and you get that root of bitterness, you've got some claws in you and he's just going to get deeper and deeper and deeper into you until he's just kind of wrapped all around. Don't give the devil a place to hang on. You want to be a third grader, don't you? And it also affects your work ethic. Verse 28. He who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands. And this is interesting. The purpose he gives for this, so that you may have something to share with those in need. you got to work for a living, but he didn't say so you can provide for your family or so that you can tuck stuff away for retirement, or or so that you can you know feel good about yourself. No, it's for you to share with people who don't have what you have. That's the purpose of your work. And some of us who do work have a tendency to steal on the job. The work ethic. I mean, and, and some of you are, are very aware of people who who are on the clock, but they're not really working. They, they have a job, but they don't really put their time in. Make sure you're not one of those people. You reflect Christ. Do your work as unto him. It also affects your relationships with God and with other people. Look at chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, and every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate. Now, I need to wrap this up. I'm out of time. But for right now, you might feel a little beat up. <laughs> and that's, that's not my intent. My intent um, is to help you deter- discern between conviction and condemnation. If you're being convicted by the Holy Spirit of any of these things, and it's drawing you to God, that's good. Drawing you to Him in repentance. Let that happen. But if you're feeling condemned, if you're listening to the voice of the accuser saying, you know you're know, you worthless, you you knew you were a horrible Christian, you should even just stop trying. That's condemnation and that's not the Holy Spirit. That's driving you away from God. Don't listen to that. Listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to draw you toward Him in repentance, bowing the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because he says, at one time, you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Remember who you are. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be this children of light that's described, and we find ourselves messing it up every single day. But we know that your grace is sufficient and your help is ever-present. Thank you for being what we cannot be on our own. In Jesus' name, amen.